Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 will be in the first 13 verses here this morning. Matthew 9, 1 through 13, as we do this, we'll see this central idea that Jesus came to forgive sinners who know that they're sinners. Jesus came to forgive sinners who know they are sinners. All right, Matthew 9, verse 1. In getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my sons, son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Stop right there. We'll read the rest of these verses in a few minutes. As we noted a couple of weeks ago, in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, uh, we're working our way through a series of ten miracles that Jesus does uh, to reveal some things about himself. So at the end of chapter 7, he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and people were shocked. They were amazed at the authority that he taught with. Well, in chapter 8, he demonstrated that he had authority over demons, over disease, over all kinds of sickness. Well, Matthew doesn't arrange these miracles in chronological order, as in this one came first, and this one came second, and this one came third. Rather, what he does is he structures the, the way that he puts these together to prove a point. He's making a theological point here. And that the idea is this, that Jesus has authority, authority that is equal with God because he is indeed God. Well, as the things that we've noted before, disease, sickness, teaching, these things show remarkable authority. Well, this morning, Jesus kind of takes the next step. And you can see even in the words of the people that are there, they know he's taking an additional step here because they accuse him of what? They accuse him of blasphemy. Essentially of claiming to be God because Jesus claims that he has the power, the authority to forgive sins. And so this morning, Jesus takes that next step in demonstrating his authority. And as he does this, he has a remarkable blend of compassion and authority that we see in these verses. Well, you may remember Jesus crossed to the far side of the sea. And in in doing this, they encountered a big storm on the way across. Well, on the way back, thankfully, this trip is a bit less Eventful. Verse 1 tells us he came into his own city. Now, Matthew here doesn't identify that city by name, but earlier in chapter 4, verse 13, he told us that this town is Capernaum. So we've looked at this map a number of times, but I'm just going to orient us here. So we're in the north area of Israel here, not the south, up around the Sea of Galilee. Going to kind of zoom in on the Sea of Galilee. And as we do this, Jesus has crossed over to the west side to Gergesa, and he's now back to kind of the north central, just slightly northeast there, to the town of Capernaum. And this is really where most of his ministry during this Uh, this section of his life takes place. Well, Matthew isn't the only one to tell us this story. Mark and Luke both record this story as well. And what Matthew says fairly briefly, some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a bed. The other gospels include some other dramatic details. Jesus is teaching in a house. And as is want to happen when Jesus is teaching, a large crowd gathers there. They pack into the house and pack around the house, and so it's impossible for anyone else to get in. Well, four men hear that there's a great healer there. They have a paralyzed friend. 
So they come to Jesus intending to bring him uh, their friend. Now this friend can't come himself because he's paralyzed. They bring him on a bed or a stretcher. And when they get to the house, they realize that they can't get in. But Jesus tells us, or Matthew tells us something about Jesus' first interaction with these men. He doesn't tell us about these people, but he tells us what Jesus saw in verse 2. And what is it that Jesus notices about them? Jesus saw their faith. Now, what is it that reveals their faith to Jesus? Well, Mark and Luke tell us it's the effort they expended to get their friend to Jesus. And the way the story is constructed in Mark kind of lets us picture it in our mind. There's a crowd packed into the house, and these men come, and they try to break through the crowd. Now, apparently, everyone else there is kind of irritated. You know, they're kind of last in line, and they're trying to break in line ahead of all these other people who are listening to Jesus. Some of them may also have needed to be healed. They come to the house, and they realize they cannot break through this crowd. They fight to get their way through, but they cannot. And so what they do is they go up to the roof of the house, and they literally tear the roof off of this house and lower this man on his stretch. Now, I imagine if you're the paralyzed dude, this is probably a little bit precarious as you're being let down through the roof of this house. And so the way these first century Jewish houses are constructed is something that would allow this. They're not using uh, crowbars and hammers. They would have these houses in their kind of levels. You can see here the courtyard below is where the animals would stay. So no, these houses no doubt smelled really nice. Well, on the second floor of this house, you have kind of the living quarters of the family. And above that, you have kind of a thatched roof. It would be mud and, um, and reeds and wood kind of weaved together. Well, one other unpleasant effect of the effort they're expending is that as they are tearing this, this dirt and these sticks apart, what's happening to everyone below? They're getting showered with all this debris, right? This is not a pleasant experience for everyone else there. In fact, it's kind of annoying if you're there to see Jesus. And so, no doubt, uh, oftentimes on these houses, there'd be kind of an exterior staircase to, to get up, and that's apparently what they took up to the roof. So these men have gone to great lengths to get their friend to Jesus, Well, why have they brought him? Because he can't move. He's paralyzed. In a world where everything depends on your ability to do for yourself, he is destitute. Yet Jesus' first words to this man are surprising. He says in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' first words have nothing to do with the man's obvious problem, which is that he can't walk, he can't move. But even before we get to the sins being forgiven, I love the first words out of Jesus' mouth. His first words to this man are, take heart or have courage. Well, the other writers tell this story kind of in longer form, but Matthew is the only one who records these words of Jesus. Jesus isn't a machine kind of zapping people as they just come through on a conveyor belt. He sees real people with real problems in real time, and he takes the time to care for those people. Have you ever been in a dentist's office or a doctor's office or maybe an urgent care center and you felt more like you were at the DMV and someone actually caring for you? Take a number, wait in line, and you know that you kind of go through on the conveyor belt, you want to talk to the to, to, to the physician or to someone, and it's almost like they don't have time because they've got to keep going through numbers. Jesus, Jesus isn't like that. He takes a moment now for this man. He's the complete opposite of that. And Matthew's going to point that out. He's pointing in this passage. I mean, at the end of this story, people are afraid because of Jesus' authority. But what do we see here initially? We see his compassion. 
And at the end of this chapter, at the end of chapter 9, Matthew tells us Jesus looks out and he sees crowds. And when he sees the crowds, how does he feel? He looks on them with compassion because they're like sheep wandering without a shepherd. Matthew is proving to us, remember, that Jesus has authority, but he's also taking time to demonstrate for us that blended with Jesus' authority is a remarkable compassion, a remarkable heart of love for hurting people. So you track through the Gospels, you see, see kind of Jesus dealing with different groups of people in different ways. When he encounters proud, self-righteous people, he consistently confronts their pride. But when he meets hurting people, over and over he deals with them in patience, in love, and compassion. I mean, think about this man. He's experiencing physical problems, but what we don't know is kind of the emotional and psychological weight that he feels. He cannot move. You ever been physically debilitated? Maybe you couldn't move or it was painful to move? Have you ever been at a point in life where you are completely dependent on everyone else to do something for you? You can't do for yourself. You can't even get to the sink to get a drink of water. And some of you maybe experience this this phase of life kind of indefinitely. You've been told by the doctor, you can't drive. And that means when you hand over the keys to your car, you're handing over your independence. And handing over your independence, you're handing over, in a lot of ways, your peace of mind, your sense of independence, You find yourself in a position that you hate. Now you're dependent on everyone else to meet your needs. Or maybe you're the the flip side of that coin. You're the caregiver. There's someone who needs constant care, and you know the weight, the burden, the discouragement that that can be to you. It's someone who needs more help and better help than you can give, and you feel the constant weight of that burden. A friend, a family member who needs better care than you can give them. Or maybe worse than that physical debilitating, that that physically sapping experience, you've experienced a traumatic life event that sucked the wind out of your sails, and there are days when you feel it is sucking the faith out of your soul. You can physically move, but you feel spiritually incapacitated, like someone has sucked you in the wind and you cannot catch your breath. There's no doubt that No matter what it is, if it's not today, at some point, life throws all of us something too big for us to handle on our own. Sometimes that's literal paralysis, and sometimes that's spiritual or emotional paralysis. In a broken world, some days it is not easy to find solutions. It is not a few times. It is many times in my ministry where I've sat with someone and said, look, I don't know, let's pray to God for wisdom, because we don't have answers for this today. Let's ask God to help us. These men are desperate to get their friend to Jesus. And when they find, when they get there, they find the creator of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence, looking at them, welcoming them with compassion. The crowd is no doubt irritated. They wouldn't let them through. And there's one person there who welcomes them. And the first words he speaks to this man are, take heart, be encouraged. So brother or sister, if you find yourself this morning overwhelmed, take heart heart. If you find yourself discouraged because you can't meet your most basic needs, take heart. If you find yourself looking for answers and finding none, take heart. You may not be able to find all of the answers to your questions, 
But if you run to Jesus and run and run and run over and over and over again, you desperately run to him, you will find a Savior who loves you, who welcomes you, greets you with compassion, and says to you, take heart every single time. We never find any moment where Jesus meets with someone who needs his compassion and he rejects them. He confronts the self-righteous, but he always welcomes the needy. Well, normally when Jesus meets this man, you would think he would heal him to prove that he can forgive sins, but in this case, it's just the opposite. He says, I can forgive your sins, and in, in doing this, he's kind of laying a trap for the people around. He recognizes that for any of us, our greatest problem is not physical symptoms, but a sin against a holy God. This is our most basic problem. It doesn't mean the other problems aren't serious. It just means that our eternal problem is the one of our soul. Matthew 1.21 tells us why Jesus' parents were to name him Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. And here we find him doing just that. Jesus seems to be deliberately provoking the scribes. Other passages tell us that Pharisees are there as well. In verse 3, they say, this man is blaspheming. Well, the scribes, as you may know, are an educated group of people. They are experts in the law. And not only are they experts, they're there to tell everyone else that they are experts. They discuss the Word of God, and then they tell everyone else what it means. Yet their expertise has taken a toll. If there's a spectrum of response to Jesus from openly accepting to questioning to neutral to completely resisting, the scribes are on the far end of this resisting Jesus spectrum. It's why last week as we looked at Matthew chapter 8, it was so surprising to find a scribe even interested in talking to Jesus, and he came to him and he wanted to, to follow him. Well, the scribes are there gossiping among themselves, but Jesus, because he's God, he knows what they're thinking, and he asks them a trick question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your bed and walk? Well, which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why is that? Because you can't tell. I mean, you, you, I, can, I can say to you, your sins are forgiven. You, don't really, you can't really see the effects of that. But if there's a paralyzed person, a quadriplegic here lying on the floor, and I say, get up and walk, you can quickly see whether I can do that or not. So the trick question is, one is easier to say, but one is actually more difficult to do. In other words, you could be a miracle worker. There are other people in history who have, who have done miracles. The disciples themselves will do great miracles. There will be people in heaven who have done great miracles. And yet there's only one person who can forgive sins. And that person is the eternal God himself, the one against whom the sins are committed. Well, the scribes themselves make that point in Mark and Luke. They say they know what's happening here because they say, okay, we've seen miracles done, but only God can forgive sins. So Jesus says, you're right. And in order that you may know who I am, in order that you may know who the Son of Man is, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 7, he got up and went home. I mean, this man has been carried in by four friends, let down through a roof, and he gets up and he walks out through the crowd. Now, the crowd that was pressed in so closely, Matthew tells us here, they were afraid, so no doubt they part and this man carries his stretcher out. You see, this miracle is about healing, but it's more than about healing and earthly disease. It's about proving that Jesus is God and that he has the power to deal with our greatest problem, which is sin against God. 
But when people see the power of God manifest in this way, they fear because they know what kind of power could do this. When the crowd saw it, verse 8, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus blends remarkably compassion and authority. We see both in this story. This brings us to our second story in verses 9 through 13. So we'll read those verses now. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What we see here is that Jesus is a friend to sinners. And first we see him calling a sinner, Matthew, in verse 9. Jesus apparently is leaving the city, the town of Capernaum, and he comes across a tax booth in verse 9. This is likely kind of an import-export booth, a customs booth there at the edge of the city, probably at an intersection of crossroads. People are coming into the town, and they sort of impose an import-export tax on goods going in and out of the city. Matthew's a customs officer. He's a Jew, but he represents another group, another authority. So his job is to assess fees based upon the value of the goods going in and out. Well, taxes and tax collectors aren't popular anywhere. In fact, we're kind of nearing that season. Perhaps some of you are already done with your taxes, and some of you are going to wait to the last minute or even file an extension on your taxes. But taxes come up for us every year, whether we like it or not, and typically it's not a welcome tax. Now, if you go out to lunch today, you'll pay a tax there. If you go to the gas pump today, you'll pay a tax there. Taxes are sort of a burden levied on people. So tax collectors and taxes aren't popular in any culture, but in this culture in particular, they represented something. Tax collectors were considered traitors by Jews. So Matthew Levi is a Jew, but he represents a Roman authority, an external government. Well, you can imagine, as much as you enjoy paying your taxes now, imagine that you were paying them to the Russians and that the people responsible for collecting your taxes were Americans who represented a foreign government. And that in addition to the taxes that they would collect for this government, the way they made their living was just by randomly assessing extra fees for you for your taxes. And so in addition to your 8 or 10% that your bill deserved, you added another 5% on that that you would pay to this person to kind of line their pockets. So these people are greedy and abusive. They represent a system that takes advantage of people. Well, as Jesus approaches this tax booth, he speaks two simple words. They're words that he's spoken elsewhere. He says, follow me. Well, we are reading Matthew's gospel this morning. He becomes one of the 12 disciples. Luke's gospel adds these words, that Matthew left everything and followed him. In other words, Matthew was getting rich. Matthew was someone whose way of life was sure. He was hated, but he was in a very lucrative line of work, and he literally left everything to become a follower of Jesus. He leaves everything and walks into an arena of life where his very presence is going to spur resentment. I mean, imagine that you're one of the few who's following Jesus, and then this guy comes. He is not welcome there. And yet Matthew leaves everything and follows Christ. 
So Jesus calls a sinner, and then we see him hanging out with sinners. Well, after Jesus calls Matthew, we find him at a dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us a lot about this party, and that's in part because he's the one throwing it. I mean, Luke tells us Matthew has this party. So as soon as Matthew comes to know Jesus, he wants everyone he knows, all his friends, to know Jesus. And so he invites his friends. And what kind of friends does Matthew have? People like him, tax collectors, and sinners. Well, Matthew identifies as a tax collector and a sinner, and there are now many more tax collectors and sinners here. It's interesting to note that when Matthew is writing this, even years later, as a faithful disciple of Jesus, he identifies himself here with who he was, a tax collector and a sinner, as were his friends. Well, when you have an honored teacher in town, what you do, you try to invite honored guests to honor this honored teacher, people who will bring honor to him by their presence. But Matthew knows that Jesus is a different kind of teacher. So tax collectors themselves weren't necessarily unclean because they're Jewish people, but they associated all the time with Gentiles who were unclean people. Sinners are people who don't give attention, like scribes and Pharisees, to keeping themselves clean. Scribes and Pharisees devote their entire lives to keeping themselves ritually clean, ceremonially clean, and clean before the law. These sinners, no doubt, include drunkards, prostitutes, divorced people. So Jesus is eating a meal with a group of people who are anything but what a good, honored, reputable teacher would... They're anything but who he would want to eat with, naturally. Well, as usual, there's a crowd there ready to criticize Jesus. Verse 11, the Pharisees accused Jesus not to his face, but to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, implied in this is another question. Why isn't he eating with us good people? Why is he eating with those people when he could be with us? I mean, this kind of association shows you what a foolish teacher Jesus is. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even know who he should be eating with. I mean, the Pharisees avoid these people, and any good teacher should avoid these people. And yet Jesus not only doesn't avoid them, he seeks them out, invites them to follow him, and then shares a meal with them at one of their house, houses. Well, Jesus responds in verse 13 with a few kind of put-down words. The Pharisees, he said, go and learn. <laughs> Which I like this because these are the learned people. I mean, these are the experts. These are the scholars. And Jesus says, it's time for me to take you to school. This is extremely confrontational. These men claim to know and represent the scriptures, and yet Jesus tells them to go and learn. And then he quotes to them from their scriptures from Hosea, the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, if you go back and look at Hosea, the word there, mercy, is hesed which is God's faithful, steadfast, covenant love. What point, if you remember back several weeks to the Sermon on the Mount, what point does Jesus make repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount? He makes the point that the gospel of Jesus works from the inside out. It's not that God doesn't care at all about the outside, but, but just the way this works is he works in, inside us to the outside, and the Pharisees do the opposite. They work from the outside in. In other words, get yourself all cleaned and scrubbed and looking nice, and then people will think you're good. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You clean the outside, but on the inside, you're dirty. On the inside, you're unclean. God cares about the heart. 
You focus on the outside appearance. These people clean themselves up. They put on their best church clothes. They associate with good Christian people so that people think they are also good Christian people. Jesus says the gospel works in the opposite direction. God changes your heart first and it produces good works. It produces mercy. It produces grace. It produces love. We don't act loving so that people think we're loving. We love because God has loved us. We don't act gracious so that people think, oh, what kind, gracious people. God changes us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart, a new creation that's kind and gracious. Mercy, Jesus says, is more important than sacrifice because God sees our hearts. God cares about the heart we offer the sacrifice with more than the sacrifice itself. Because everyone around us can see at some level what's on the outside, but God looks at us and he knows us as we really are. As Hebrews says, we all stand naked before him. It's God knows everything about us. There's not a single thing we can hide, and he changes us from the inside out. To kind of change metaphors a little bit, the Pharisees are spending all their time washing and waxing their car. They get, they get the wheels black, the, the tires black, the wheels shined, and they, they, they cruise in on Sabbath day. There's no, there's no engine in this car. Because the grace that drives a true relationship with God is built on something the Pharisees cannot bring themselves to admit. Well, to stick with the car metaphor, imagine that you pull up to a car lot. On one side of the car lot, there are a bunch of bright, new, shiny, waxed sports cars looking awesome. On the other side are a bunch of beaters. They have visible problems. They're rusted. Maybe the windows, you know, don't roll down. You can only get in one door. Seats are cracked. These look really good. These cars look terrible. But the secret is neither is drivable. Under the hood, they have the same problem. They have no engine. Their hearts, their engines, so to speak, are corrupt. So back to Jesus' words in verse 12. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Then Jesus kind of explains what he means by all this in verse 13. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's the punchline. There are no righteous people. This is what Romans 3 says. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Earlier in that same chapter, Paul says, there is no one righteous, not a single one. There is no one who does good. So what we have here are two cars or two groups of people. One, who, one group, they are living in denial about who they are, and the other group who can admit who they are. You see, the only difference in these people is one admits who they are and one does not admit who they are. The, the, the righteous people are sinners. These sinners are sinners, but the difference is that tax collectors and sinners know and can admit that they are sinners. Jesus can help people like that. He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for the people that can't admit that they they need grace. He didn't come for the people that can't admit that they, they need God. All we have to do is admit that we are sinners who have broken the law of God, that inside, underneath the hood, we are broken. Every one of us has fallen short of the expectations of a holy God. 
Jesus came for everyone, but the only people he can help are those who admit that they need his help. There are two qualifications for getting into Jesus' kingdom. One is to admit that you can't get on your own, and secondly is to ask him to let you in, to, to qualify you to get in, to sort of place the engine of his qualifications within you. And so if you're here this morning, there's no way to be a part of this kingdom but to admit that you don't deserve to be a part of it. I mean, if you're here this morning and there is any speck of thought in you that you deserve to be here, that you deserve God's grace, that you deserve God's favor, you don't understand Jesus. He did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners. So would you turn from your sin? Even if it's a sin of self-righteousness, even if it's a sin of thinking you have no sin, and trust Jesus today. We can't believe we're basically good people and also be helped by Jesus. Well, I'd like you to think for just a minute about this. Jesus came for what kind of people? For the sick, for sinners. Jesus ate with them, hung out with them. What does that mean for us? us as a church. It means that the church of all places should be a place where people can be vulnerable about the fact that they're sinners. It means that the church of all places should be a safe place for people to admit their flaws. I was young, naive, maybe I'm still young and naive, but uh, getting started in ministry, and I was sitting with a group of pastors eight or ten pastors there, and praying for each other. And I said something along the lines of, hey, I'd appreciate, appreciate your prayers. For whatever reason, the last week or two, it's just been just a difficult season of life in our marriage, and just pray that, just pray that God will give us peace. I wasn't confessing that we were on the brink of divorce. I wasn't confessing that anyone was throwing anything. I was just saying, like, it's a little hard. You know, I mean, maybe you don't know this. Living with someone can be hard sometimes. And I remember it was like this. I said that in this room of pastors, and it was like this. It literally was physically like, like people looked at me like that. Like, and I literally thought, like, I'm never, I'm never speaking up in here again. Like, I'm not volunteering that I need help to a group like this. I mean, brothers and sisters, we're all just sinners in need of grace. Hearing candid struggles with sin, growth in Christ, that shouldn't be surprising. That's the regular diet of what it means to be a Christian. People just struggling to take one step forward. Do you want to be like Jesus? You've got to spend time with sick people, and you've got to know how sick you are. Those who are well have no need of a physician, only those who are sick. But, but the point is that we're all sick. I mean, the church is more like a rehab hospital than it is a resort for good people. We, we might look at it this way. When we're saved, God changes us. He, he pronounces the cure, the righteousness of Jesus in place of our sin. And yet, the rest of our life in a broken world is spent in rehabilitation. It's spent in a rehab hospital. We're growing, we're changing, we're not staying the same. We're looking more and more like Jesus, but in any resort for the beautiful people, it's a rehab hospital for broken people. 
It's not a place of prominence. It's people who are humble because they know there, but for God's grace, I would go. They're people who are welcoming because they know how Jesus has welcomed them. They're people who are generous because they know what Jesus has blessed them with when they didn't deserve anything. Why is the ground at the foot of the cross level? Because there were all sinners in need of grace. And anyone who comes will find grace. So as we close, let's ask ourselves this question. Do we think ourselves as an institution, prominence, resort? Are we a hospital? A rehab place of broken people who humbly welcome other people the same way that Jesus has welcomed us. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, I thank you that you are a loving God who welcomes the broken. I pray that you will help us admit our brokenness and welcome others the same way you have welcomed us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning and you would like to be introduced to this Savior, to Jesus, we'd love to introduce you to him. Or perhaps God is working in your heart in regard to baptism, membership, or any other need. We, we're available if there's any way that we can serve you. Sometimes it happens here, or sometimes it can happen uh, throughout the week or other times as well. As we respond to the word, we're going to sing this morning, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word." Would you stand, please? We'll sing together.
as we close this morning, uh, let me encourage you, if you're not a part of one of our Sunday school classes, uh, feel free to ask us. We can direct you to the right spot. There will actually be a group meeting here this morning at 945 for uh, an elective looking at our hope in darkness, trusting God in the midst of uh, fear, anxiety, and depression. If you'd like to be a part of that, all are welcome. Well, as you go, may the grace and peace of God our Savior go with you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.